Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie G.G., and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I'm fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help communicating or marketing just about anything, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com and subscribe to hear our next episode. As a podcaster for justice, I stand with my sisters from the Women of Color podcasters community. We are podcasters united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and many others at the hands of police. Find out how you can help at hashtag podcasters for justice. This week, I interviewed Ash Prasad, a South Asian Indian immigrant born in Fiji Islands, raised in Calgary and Vancouver, BC, who now lives in Portland, author of How to Write Inclusively, an analysis and how-to guide. Equity and justice are her pillars as an anti-racist educator and screenwriter. Let's meet Ash. Hello, Ash. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. So can you share with our listeners about your childhood? So gosh, my story is diversity within diversity. I was born in Fiji and I moved to Canada, Calgary, Alberta, when I was one and a half. So one and a half to almost eight. So pretty, you know, I have memories of Canada and Calgary. I was in Calgary. And then from eight to 18, which I call my formative years, I was in Vancouver, BC. I graduated high school there and all that fun stuff. And in terms of my childhood, I mean, it was okay. I can't say it was the most happiest. There were a lot of hard times with a dysfunctional family and there's a lot of dysfunction in general, but there was also just an an unhappy home. But that kind of relates to my theater work and uh, what I did when I was in high school. Of course, there was some, some good stuff with some of your listeners know, and with the South Asian and also island culture, there was always a lot of community. You know, a cousin that I spend a lot of time with today, even if it's over Zoom, I remember trips with her family, us hanging out and having that community sense. Weddings, parties, all of that uh, definitely did happen. You know, not as much as I would have liked, I think, as a child, of course. Mm -hmm. But one thing, if I had to reminisce about my family, and my childhood would be definitely a feeling of community Mm -hmm. that I don't necessarily always feel when I am either hanging out in white culture, I would say, or indefinitely in white culture in in the workplace. As much as people have talked about teamwork and all that, really haven't found a space where I'm like, yes, this feels so good. I feel like I belong and I can feel that community. Yeah, it's hard for white people to find community. I feel lucky because I belong to a very progressive church. So Mm -hmm. that's one of my communities. And I also joined a rock choir last year. So that's another community. But it's hard for people to find community if they don't have that in their families. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, it is unfortunate. And people need it. Uh, You know, in the work that I do, which we'll get to, but we talk about inclusion and belonging. And it's that belonging piece that that is so important. Yes. So what made you decide to move to Oregon and stay here? Well, um, my parents moved down. So we were luckily, we were able to get dual citizenship. And so I was at a crossroads. I was 18 and it was time, you know, either I could stay in uh, Vancouver and uh, do everything on my own or I could move down here and do school. And so I chose to do school and I was able to complete a bachelor's over at Oregon State. And I love to learn. 
and so I completed three other master degrees, two in the liberal arts, the third is the MBA, and it was just a space. Oregon was really thriving. Portland started to thrive, and you know I was enjoying my time in in Oregon and in Portland at that time with the friends I'd made from college, continuing friends, and starting my career. And tell us a little bit more about what you studied. You had some really fascinating areas of study. Well, what happened is that I started a class that I took winter term of my senior year. So I was on my way out mm. <laughs> and it, it was called Ethics of Adversity and it actually should have been called Philosophy of Oppression. Mm. And so we really talked about the philosophical harms around injustice and it changed my life. The professor changed my life. There's actually an Oregon Arts Watch article where I mentioned this, that class changed the way I looked at everything, how privilege was used, how I uh, wasn't as privileged as I thought I was. It helped me understand my journey and getting out of everybody's a humanist perspective and turned me into a feminist and just realizing how fortunate I was, but also there were things that were stacked up against myself and others. So one example that we talked about in the class was the word Asian. And so, you know, we use this broad term, but it's also, you know, how much does a South Asian have in common with somebody that Vietnamese? Yes, we have the human perspective, but culturally we're very different. But then we end up with this huge group that we call Asians. You know, it's just like calling indigenous people in this country. You just end up in just this clump and you have more people than you actually don't qualify for different scholarships because you're too big. Mm -hmm. So that class had a profound effect. And I graduated in a multiple disciplinary degree. And what I had been told was that that was the degree for people that really just wanted a degree and kind of get out. But I chose it because I. I didn't want to pick a major. I, I just didn't. I just didn't understand mm -hmm. why people need to pick a major. You know, philosophy intersects with sociology, intersects with anthropology. Like I just didn't understand it. And I still don't. So there was a rolling admissions for an interdisciplinary master's, and I took it. And so my thesis, my first thesis, was on building a portfolio course that was required for all college students. And so what they would do is they would spend the first third of their time. And what you would do is you would learn about the philosophical harms of oppression. The next third of your time in your senior year, you would be learning about the sociological harms. So the poverty rate and how poverty is built to be a cycle. You make $1 more past the poverty rate and you lose everything. And so how is that beneficial to people who are trying to get out? The last thing you would do is you would spend the last third of your senior year with a group that you were uncomfortable with. Hmm. So you would go to a mosque, you would go to a temple, you would go to the synagogue, you would go to the LGBT center, and you would spend significant time over eight weeks, because that's how we learn. You got to get out of your comfort zone, and you got to talk to other people who aren't like you. So that was my first thesis. And I decided that I really loved philosophy, and I thought I was going to be a philosophy professor. So I ended up getting a master's in philosophy, and my thesis there was on the intersections of the nonviolent movement and the Hindu religion. In the Hindu religion, there are four castes. What people don't know is that the fifth, known as the untouchables, is a social construction. There's nowhere in the scriptures where the fifth untouchable class exists. You have the scholarly religious caste, you have the warrior caste, you have the business caste, and then you have the laborer caste. And unlike the way it is today, traditionally, in the way the caste system is practiced, people are born into it and you stay to it. 
but in the scriptures, you go to the cast and the work that you are good at. So if even if you're born in the Brahmin and scholarly class, if you are really good at business, that's what you should be doing. And so I saw just a lot of intersections between that and the nonviolent movement that we've seen coming from those like Gandhi and MLK. Yeah. And then I was like, oh gosh, what am I going to do? So I decided to get an MBA. So at least I could, <laughs> so I could at least have a little bit of flexibility in my <laughs> life and, mm-hmm. and, you know, in my career path that I was going to follow because society tells me to follow it. <laughs> yeah. And so that's a good segue into your career trajectory. What if you have now and yeah. what's your focus currently? Yeah, I know. That's yeah, exactly. You know, I built my career uh, as a senior consultant because I am so diverse and because I just don't understand one niche. My resume reads like a consulting resume. I've been in finance. I've been in IT. I've been in healthcare. I've worked for state and federal governments everywhere, you know, from your very start to the administrative coordinator type of levels to IT to health, again, senior consultant. And I've also, you know, done a lot of work in the anti-racism space. But I will say seven years ago, it was just a realization about, I just was unhappy. And I was just like, where do I take my skill set? And how do I mesh it with, with creativity? So I was like, let me be a project manager. Because at that time, I was doing project management. Let me be a project manager at like Wadden and Kennedy or at the art museum. Like, what can I do to intersect that? And like, it was heavy on my mind and made some career moves. But, you know, unfortunately, the way our system has been built is that if you want to change careers, it's very difficult. And it also just doesn't make sense to me. You know, I know we're talking about resilience and grit here, and it just never makes sense that just because you chose something at 22, why would that work for you at 32, at 42? And it, it just blows my mind. It makes no sense. And so, you know, trying to transition uh, three years later from where I was just feeling unhappy, but the unhappiness didn't last, but I knew I needed a change. I ended up meeting all these yogis and artists and musicians and that creativity, uh, you know, people I still talk to today kind of lingered. And about a year and a half ago, I was heavy on my mind just about anti-racism work um, and how influential media is. And what I decided was I wanted to take a look at the South Asian contributions in North America, uh, South Asian Indians, because there's a lot. I was reading and I saw that the first recordings of South Asian Indians temples, mandirs, were in the in 1920s San Francisco. And so that got me really interested. I learned about some immigrants that were coming from BC, you know, what we call BC today, and they actually settled in Astoria, Oregon. And this is the early 1900s. This is, you know, 100, 125 years ago. And there was a group of men, primarily it was, it's the men that, that migrate. And it was called the Hindu, Hindu Alley in Astoria, Oregon. And they were working out in Astoria. So I'm like, wait, why don't I know this history? <laughs> <laughs> And it really upset me because I didn't know this. You know, what happened is I also learned about the Sepoys, which uh, were World War I soldiers. They were fighting for the British in World War I, and they were also being colonized by the British. So there was this intersection there. There were 1.3 million South Asian Indian males that fought in World War I. 73,000 of them died, and 400,000 of them were Muslims. Let me repeat that. 1.3 million South Asian Indian 
Indian soldiers fought for the British, so the Allied forces in World War I. 73,000 of them died, and 400,000 of that 1.3 million were Muslims. So what a contribution they've had to the world we live in today. But what do you see, right, when you see a war movie today? We only see one perspective. Mm -hmm. So that set my path. That set my path that I was like, you know, I want to be a screenwriter because media is so influential. And I want what I watch on the screens to be diverse. And I want to tell these stories. And I want to tell the stories of the people that have been forgotten or erased from history. Wow, that's really impressive. Now, do you know the history about the uprising in St. John's against the Hindus? I am not familiar, no. Yeah, I participated in a cohort with Emerge. And yeah, there was a fairly sizable population in St. John's of Hindus as well. I can't remember all the details, but really interesting story and very Mm -hmm. sad story. I think they were run out of town and it was connected Mm -hmm. to the Astoria population as well. So Right. Not surprised because you know you're along the coast and that's probably where the jobs were. It's really amazing to learn what we have not learned. Yeah, so let's talk about your grit and resilience story. You know, going back to when I was in high school, it's an interesting story for me because of the balance between my creativity and what I went into and what I didn't go into. So I remember when I was, it was like the last couple of days of elementary school and I was in Vancouver, you go from elementary school to high school, there isn't a middle school. And so I remember one of the last days I was with my music teacher, it was one of our last music classes. And my teacher, she was playing the piano like she always did. She loved playing the piano. And it's such a vivid memory. I remember she said to me, I hope you continue on with music in high school. And I don't remember if she said I had talent or I had a gift. Fast forward to today, and I do not play an instrument. <laughs> I do not. I do not sing. I, but I have an infinity for music. Like I can listen to a song like one time and know the lyrics to a song. So something's there, you know, with, with music, but I just didn't jump on that opportunity. And then I was offered a, one of the lead roles in a high school play. And I chose to be a stagehand, even though my drama teacher tried to talk me out of it. And then, oh, it gets better. In college, I was doing my back core. So it, I think it's called the arts, letters and sciences. I chose drama. I chose theater as my elective. I remember it was one of the last days of my two-course sequence, and the teacher said, come audition for the spring play. I have the perfect role for you. And I did not go to auditions. You know, I look back at that. I don't have an answer yet of why I didn't, but people have seen things in me. And so now I'm in a space, you know, many years later where I can embrace what they were talking about. And it is harder when you don't have that portfolio since you were 16 years old of doing things like you think about a Brie Larson. It's not like, you know, Captain Marvel came in, into her lap. She's been acting since she was six years old. It, it is a climb. And it, I definitely don't discourage anybody from doing it. It's just the difference between building your resume today <laughs> versus mm-hmm. if you had all of this accolades when you're 18. And so just working through it right now, uh, building my portfolio, building my scripts, these podcasts, doing this to get my name out there so that people know and also building a brand out of this which is the inclusive screenwriter and that's and it's because of my anti-racism work that I've been doing for 20 years being able to take all of this it's about resiliency taking what I have today and how can I bring it into my passion which is screenwriting and entertainment 
something I love. How can I take all of these years of experience and intersect? And screenwriting is a great way of doing that, where I can take my anti-racism work, my inclusive lens, and then telling stories and be an advocate through my work and through working with others on how to be inclusive in your storytelling and bring these folks that are really important for me to our screens so we can see their stories versus just a a mono perspective on the stories that we traditionally see. Well, this is such a perfect time for you to be doing this, I think. So why don't you talk a little bit about your ebook? Sure. What happened is COVID does things to you <laughs> <laughs> and lockdown does things to you. And so, so I was looking at the different screenwriting books that are out there and there are some good books, but there weren't books about how to write inclusively. How do you really stop bringing stereotype into your readings. So I was like, I'm going to write a book on this because I saw such a huge gap in the literature around inclusive storytelling. And so I started writing it. And as I was doing more research into the book, I was like, my goodness, this book isn't meant for just screenwriters. It's meant for any writer. And so I published an ebook. It's short and sweet, but it's informative. And what I do is I also have a how-to guide on how to write inclusively. Because what you find, and this is where you do your research, you'll get really vague statements on how to be more diverse. For example, there was a USC study that talked about the lack of diversity and a huge diversity and inclusion issue in Hollywood. And one of the recommendations was to remove confirmation bias and stereotypes from your scripts. Like that was the recommendation. (laughs) Not very helpful. (laughs) And so I was like, we need how to's, you need the details and consider my ebook a contribution to screenwriting contribution to my craft where I talk about the issues around lack of inclusivity, about exclusion within Hollywood and how things are changing both in film, TV, and now with streamers, Netflix, uh, Disney Plus, and ways that we can create content to be inclusive. And the interesting thing is now that it's released and published, that the reviews I'm getting is that originally I started it off for screenwriters And then I went to writers. And now what I'm getting feedback on is my how-tos can be applied in everyday life. What I love about your book is that you give so many examples. And I'm always telling people to give examples (laughs) because (laughs) that really brings it home for people. It's really critical to have those. Yeah. And as you know, like when I look at some of these characters, uh, like Scarlett Johansson's playing a Japanese woman, Mm -hmm. uh, my goodness, or Benedict Cumberbatch playing Indian characters, both in Star Trek Into Darkness and Mowgli. It's very problematic when they're clearly Indian characters. The effect of that is this idea of you're not able to bring representation to the screen, and you're not allowing somebody to thrive. Hollywood's a tough industry, but if you don't give people the opportunity to shine, they're not going to be able to be those $20 million, $1.3 billion, like blank pad their folks to bring in that money. But And so if you keep on not allowing people to come in and show their, their skills, well, then, of course, you're going to just rotate the same people. And honestly, they should know better by now. They should. <laughs> <laughs> right? Shouldn't they? But, uh, I mean, they it's not should. like Natalie Wood playing a Latina in West Side Story, right? Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, times mm-hmm. are different now. They should know better. <laughs> they should. 
they should, but you know, yeah. you you might remember the statistic in the book where at UCLA study back in I think it was back in 2015, but the study was was published in 2020. They note how only 14% of screenwriters are BIPOC. Yeah. So if the stories are only coming from people who can really represent a group, whereas 90% of the people who can give the green light to get something onto our screens who say, yes, we want this, that are white, there's a huge disparity, you know, 15% to 90%. And one of the studies I said, you know, we need to make that change producers as well. And that can only work with having people into positions. And I'm not talking about just hiring a chief diversity officer. No, you need to be hiring people into all roles throughout the writing, development, production process, post-production, so that you can have representation throughout talking about resiliency, right? Like that's what you, that's what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Are things getting better? Yes. My sincere hope is that media will listen, not just Hollywood, because there's Telemundo, there's Bollywood. There's also, you know, a Nigerian presence in movie making that people listen because we want content. I can't tell you how many people, and I think you and I talked about this in the past, where how many people come up to us and are like, we're so tired of seeing the same thing. We're so tired of these remakes. People really want new content that is inclusive of the world that they see. So what are some examples of movies and TV shows that got it right? I wish I could say I had like one that was like, yes. I mean, I would say Bollywood, but they're... Exactly. <laughs> but, I know. I know. I mean, that's why Black Panther was so amazing, was because mm. all black, except for one white guy. Well, two two white guys, Martin Freeman the and the other guy. guy. Yeah. And that's the thing is that, you know, Black Panther was so amazing. And, and it was with the cast. And there was actually, you know, a black director, Anthony Mackie. He was saying that in all the Marvel movies that he has been in, it was really only Black Panther where it was actually a large majority non-white folks. One TV show that I really am into, which I have enjoyed, is Sense8 by the Wachowskis, who did The Matrix. It's on Netflix. Yeah, Sense8. It's literally about radical empathy. It only went for two seasons, unfortunately. Actually, it's got really a diverse cast, and they really got people from different parts of the world to be the leads, because it's written by, first season at least, was written by two trans women. It has a lot of that social justice within the dialogue. So it's a sci-fi around radical empathy. Yeah, check it out. I think you you would really enjoy it. So Sense8 is, is one that I think really tried to do it well in the last five years. Black Panther, of course, you know, in terms of recent movies, and overall, I would say that Netflix is really trying. Like, for example, the half of it, a movie on Netflix had a Chinese woman, as I believe she was Chinese, as the lead. And it also had a lesbian love story. It was done beautifully. It was just so nice. I have a love-hate relationship <laughs> between with Netflix, but I really did enjoy, but I really have enjoyed some of the content that's coming out. And so between Sense8, Money Heist, and Dark, I like being able to easily access content that is coming from Germany, that is coming from Spain, that is diverse from uh, the United States. So I think those are ones that have done it right. We'll see what happens with Mulan. I do not know who is in production with Mulan, but it's interesting to see the story again. So we'll see how they do it and if they, you know, if they do it well. Netflix and Hulu both have 
more diversity than our usual blockbuster movies, obviously, but I'm sure that there are problems. I agree. Some of the issues that we have is in production. How are we hiring people that do the work to get something to our screens, not just the people we see? With me being in the industry, I see it not just what's in the screens. I'm looking at, okay, who has access to the producers to pitch your work? Then who is in the development process? How diverse are the the people that are in the development phase? How are the people that are on the production when everything is being taped? Who is there? And, you know, when changes happen, who's the authority on that? Who are the directors and the marketing and who we're marketing it towards? Are people really saying, yes, we want to, you know, it really makes sense and people want to see this and we're going to put money into this marketing. Those are many, many instances and many people of points of contact where people's bias can come in and can change the trajectory of of what we see. Did you ever see Late Night? This is mm-hmm. a movie that came out last year. Emma Thompson was an obnoxious late night show host. Oh, I've seen the trailer. Yes. Okay. That yeah. is kind of interesting because Mindy Kaling comes to the show and notices that all of the writers are all white guys. Right. I'd be curious about what you thought about that movie because she basically calls them on it and says, you have no brown people here. You have no women. <laughs> so. Yep. And you're writing about women. I mean, right. I don't know if, I don't know if the movie does that, but in general, yes, you will have white males writing about right females exactly exactly. yeah yeah i i love i'm a big emma thompson fan and she was you know one of those stereotypical obnoxious powerful women but of course you know throughout the movie she gets softened by mindy kaling as you can expect (laughs) but uh, yeah you should check it out see what you think can you give us some examples of problematic movies and tv shows (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure you have a long list but just some examples and maybe in particular shows that you might have seen a long time ago that you've watched again. Here's my example. I'll start out by telling you a couple of ones that I've noticed I thought about recently. I actually watched The Silence of the Lambs for the first time a few months ago. So of course, it's decades old. And I thought it was incredibly transphobic. Yeah. But back then, you know, we were not talking about those things. And then I started thinking about the crying game. Did you ever see the crying game? Yes. Yeah. Which is, you know, incredibly transphobic. So those are my my two examples to contribute. Movies that I previously would not have noticed those things. And now that I'm more aware of these things, I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) 100%. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So the list is very long. I know. I know. Wrapping around the planet. Well, I would say, you know, even though joked earlier that Bollywood was diverse, there's a lot of colorism within Mm -hmm. Bollywood. Mm -hmm. And so when you see the Bollywood movies, you know, way back to even today, there's still a lot of very light skinned leads. You will see the darker skinned people play the villains and they're not Mm. three dimensional villains. They're one dimensional villains. There's no humanness to them. And then we see that, you know, today in the stereotypes that we see with various movies of how black people are portrayed. You know, what hasn't aged well recently for me? I must have been going through like a Mel Brooks uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. but Robin Hood Men in Tight. To this day, ever since the lead character, forget his name right now, he says goodbye and he does it in all the different languages. I mean, I used to laugh so hard. And then I watched it recently in the context leading up to that was so racist. Uh-huh. And I was like, I've never oh, seen that movie. oh no, this is not funny anymore. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Just recently too, because I'm writing a uh, fantasy script I was watching one of the movies with Heath Ledger that's based in like the 14 1500s mm-hmm. uh, the 
name's escaping me right now. Yeah, that one did not age well at all. And so I'm with you with like The Crying Game and The Silence of the Lambs, all these TV shows, like a lot mm-hmm. of the college movies in the early 2000s, you know, Cal Penn in some of the movies, the college age movies. I mean, he's, some of the things he's saying and doing so stereotypical, and it goes back to there's only certain roles that are out there for people. So they take it because they want to be working actors, but they're stereotyping and they're not doing what Chadwick Boseman did Mm -hmm. when he was playing a stereotypical black character on The Young and Restless, where he was like, you know, I really went to the producers. I don't like that. And then they went the other way with Michael B. Jordan. Mm -hmm. And Michael B. Jordan took over that role. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But that's what happens. You know, you in the past and hopefully it's not going to happen anymore. You speak out against against it and you end up being replaced. Even recently, Angelica Washington, she's on, I believe it's CW Stargirl. And back in 2017, she had a black face stunt double and she told the producers about it and they said they couldn't find anybody. Uh, so we'll see what Viacom comes out with. Apparently there's an investigation now because she, she has come out with her truth and uh, we'll see what Viacom's response is. And there were two black women that actually went to HR and reported this issue. And, and I'm talking about something that happened three years ago. So, you know, I know your question was about TV shows that haven't done it well. And again, a lot, a lot watch your movies. They just yeah. don't age well. <laughs> and even recently I was watching Sherlock before it ended. I was pretty upset the way that it went from Muslim terrorists to being the antagonist to when everything has come out since this last election about Russians. Guess who the antagonists were? Russians. People from Eastern Europe. Mm. Europe. And it was just like, oh, here we go. And I get what they were trying to do. They're trying, the, this, you know, the writers are probably just looking at the world and bringing that in. But what impact does it have? This is the question I want, you know, I'm asking is that when you build characters that are just antagonists and they're also we have these media telling us about russian trolls well what are we perpetuating and is it right when you have an eye for that a lot of the content just kind of goes over on you did you ever see that show the bodyguard it was on Netflix? no i did not see the bodyguard you know because my husband's family is british it was very popular in britain it was about a female prime minister and mm-hmm. her bodyguard and i thought it was very anti muslim oh sure well i mean people's bias are going to come in and this is where I'm actually going to be doing a pa- panel on the 11th with the International Screenwriters Association around inclusive storytelling. My co-panelist, she and I were talking about this because she does work around this. It's fine to have a villain or the uh, antagonist in, of course, our screens. It creates conflict and they have a need there. But how are you writing that person? Are you just giving them a one-dimensional character where they just down with America or U.S. America or down with women? Or are you telling the human story about why they do what they do and what their influences have been so, so that your audience can build empathy and understand why they're doing what they're doing? And that's is where we fail. A lot of our media just fails because it ends up being these characters of people and just perpetuates anti-Muslim sentiment because media is powerful and it influences yes. us. And uh, let's say for, for argument's sake, okay, if you're not conscious about it, but what about your unconscious brain? What are the images and how are they perpetuating or instilling things that you've been learning or heard about since you were little? What about the unconscious side? 
And we need to focus in on that. Okay, so let's shift away from that topic. And tell me, what does it feel like right now to be a brown person in Portland in comparison to living in British Columbia? Yeah, um, I can't speak much to Alberta. My mother, I remember she was saying that Calgary was racist, and I believe it. Right now, to be honest, ever since the election, it's it's weird. You grow up, you get used to the stares. Like literally, Mm -hmm. you walk into a restaurant and people will stop eating and just look at you. Mm -hmm. You get used to that, kind of. At this point, I just laugh and just walk away. But it is scary. It is actually scary Mm -hmm. to walk. I'm scared of people that carry the American flag. Mm-hmm. And it's it's awful. Like, why is the American flag our flag? Why is it scary? And why are the people that are carrying it scary? And so I think right now, I would say that I'm very hyper aware of people looking at me, how people treat me, things that people say or do. And it's like, it can come down to the little things. For example, I was crossing the street yesterday and somebody was at a stop sign and still took the right turn, even though I had already crossed. Mm-hmm. And some people, oh, well, you know, they were in a rush hurry. But that's not the first time that's happened to me. So what I think is it looked like a white man that did it. They don't care about my body. Mm. So they just want to take the turn because, and it makes me think if that was a white person crossing the street, would that person have taken the turn? Well, yeah, of course. And and I think that unfortunately what white people tend to do when black or brown people have those experiences is we explain that away. Like, oh, they didn't see you. <laughs> you yeah, know? exactly. I mean, it's, basically, <laughs> it's basically gaslighting your experience. And it's true. They could have done that to a white person, but why do people feel the need to say that to you? Exactly. Yeah, they're minimizing your experience. Exactly. And this is what we see continuously. And it's this minimization. And we see it in the media. It's a minimization. Or it's an it's an exaggeration to where people are like, come on, versus just really being able to be like, this is my story. And these are my experiences. And can you empathize or at least try to sympathize with what's happening? That's where we can have that progress. Yes. And, you know, because we're both living in Portland and Portland is apparently burning to the ground at the moment, apparently. Two <laughs> blocks. Like- <laughs> I know. Like, two blocks apparently are burning. Oh, gee, yeah, I- exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, I mean, the, yeah. the positive thing, I mean, I'm, I'm actually really proud of our city that we keep showing up. It's great. I'm supportive of the protest yeah. Totally. I keep arguing with people on Facebook and letting them know. It's like, if I felt like this was a violent thing, I I mean, I would not have gone to the protest. I would not have let my team go to the protest. But I was just wondering, as I've been seeing that the the percentage of Americans who support Black Lives Matter has actually gone up quite a lot. Do you find that people are more receptive to your inclusive screenwriting initiative because of that? Or what do you think? Yeah, I would say yes. It's, It's a hot deal right now. Mm -hmm. And I think we're not all, uh, by no means all, but some places are actually really trying not to be performative. And it's because society has now said, no, your Facebook post one time that you support Black Lives is not enough. <laughs> right. What are you really doing to change? Right. But I will say, and I use but purposely, is that there needs to be a lot more work to be done. So mm-hmm. for example, I know that there are production companies that are telling their third party production companies that they need to have... BIPOC people in as production staff, but that's only one small portion. The next question is, are people going to be safe? Because I am on, you know, as you are different Facebook groups and I'm on a a Facebook group with women that are in production. And this one woman was talking about how a man sabotaged her time on a, I think it was on a scripted show. And so 
I understand what what the production companies, the big ones, are trying to do with you know having this mandate around having BIPOC folks be part of their production teams. But are we creating safe spaces? Are you allowing that if somebody has a complaint that something will be done about it? You know, or are they going to be? Oh, there's a diversity hire. Don't worry about them. Right. I mean, that's unsafe environments mm-hmm. that are going to create continued trauma. And this is where the work that I'm doing is and is highlighting to people in arts and entertainment that you need to bring somebody in with expertise with that anti-racism because somebody like me can help you and be like it's not enough that you have a mandate what are you doing to make sure these people are safe yeah that we see the same thing in the corporate world people have a diversity program but they don't you know they don't <laughs> yes. spend the i mean i saw that this with my last company they had a diversity program but they did not have employee affinity group people of color and the women even you know all all yeah. shades of women did not feel safe they did not feel supported so you know it looks great on the surface <laughs> but, yes. But yeah. unless people really feel like they have a sense of belonging and a career path, it's not mm-hmm. it's not going to be any good. Yeah, I've worked in only a little bit of corporate, but you know, even in nonprofits and I actually wrote a recent blog post for a friend of mine. I've never felt like I belonged in any of my roles. Really? Whether I was a full-time contract or external consultant, I've never felt like I belonged in an organization. And so that needs to change. Yeah. And so what would have helped? More people that look like me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, that would I help. Mean, <laughs> that would help. And just because they look like me doesn't mean that we're going to be friends. You know, it's not, it's not like an instant thing where, oh yeah, yeah, it's you you, and we're going to get along. No, but you know, to be able to have not culture fit, but culture add, if Mm. we would hire from a culture add perspective with people who are willing to be trained with people who are open, that would change. If I wasn't the only woman of color in a room in a warehouse supply chain environment, how would that have changed? Mm -hmm. How are we also creating leaders? that have emotional intelligence and are safe to be around. And then a true escalation path, you know, like from, from the simple things of people don't realize this, but you know, Oh, we need to man X, Y, Z. No, you need to staff. I know. I hate that. that. Or manpower. Gosh. Yeah. No, it's not manpower. You know, I hate that. So, but these are microaggressions Mm -hmm. and they get to you over and over again. And, And then of course the bigger things where people tell you that, you know, you can't do a job or you can't do X, even though you have accolades where you have done well. There's a complete lack of self-reflection, whether it's an organization level or a person level of what do we do? No, I don't recall any single leader that I've worked for that has said to me, how are you doing? What can I do for you to feel safe in this environment? Mm -hmm. They've said to me, like, what do you need for success? Right, right. Right. So they're talking technology, education, mm-hmm. conversation, but no one has ever said, how can I make you feel safe? Mm-hmm. These are the words that we need to be using. Yeah. You know, I think back to when I worked at CHM Hill and we had a guideline. People could call in 24 hours a day to report any kind of issues of abuse. But I had a coworker who was a Latinx. She was from Costa Rica and she was getting 
abused, verbally abused by our bosses. Mm. And she did file a complaint and they investigated and nothing happened. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so even if exactly. you have those, those safeguards and then, and I talked to the lawyer who's investigating and I now just like maybe a month or two ago, I had a big aha because, you know, I was laid off from that company when we got acquired. And I think that it was retaliation because wow. my coworker had left. She had left the company by that point. Mm-hmm. But I think that, well, and these people, you know, they also ended up getting fired. <laughs> so so the, the chief boss is in question, but I really believed that the company had safeguards in place, but they completely failed. I have reported issues to the ethics hotline before and nothing's yes. happened. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that's performative, just yeah, around, di- exactly. right? Just like around diversity is performative. Yes. I did an internship actually, and I used to work alongside folks that did affirmative action and equal opportunity opportunity and they dealt with HR complaints. And, you know, there were times where there was nothing found and, you know, the HR investigator would then have to talk to this person. You know, sometimes there was crying on the other end Mm -hmm. because the news that nothing could be found was so damaging. I understand that piece, but the next step is, okay, what do we do to make you feel safe? It's not like, well, thank you. I'm sorry. Hang up the phone, move on to, no, like, and this incident, this happened years ago, but it was with a Jewish professor with a Palestinian student. Really? You know? Yes. Oh my gosh. So again, just because we didn't find anything Mm -hmm. does not mean that those microaggressions, that those issues aren't there. I'll give you another example. You know, I used to work with students and there was a group project in a nursing portfolio class for nursing. And what would happen is that it was groups of four and every single person would work together and you would get a group grade. Well, this woman that was from Africa was telling me how she got a C but her three other cohort members got A's. So the burden that was placed on the African student was to go to the teacher, have this teacher explain. I mean, this is real stories that I have heard, okay? Mm -hmm. That now the student has to go and make time out of her day, talk to this teacher to explain why she got the C when it was a a group grade. That's blatant. Yeah. That is blatant. But this is the reality Mm -hmm. that people, either, again, gaslight, go past, oh, well, maybe it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. No, these are microaggressions, macroaggressions mm-hmm. that happen every single day that is unfair to BIPOC, women, younger people, a whole gamut. Mm-hmm. This is happening every single day and we need to stop it. That's why I've already instituted, even though I'm a company of one, I've instituted a no asshole rule <laughs> I love because, it. Because, you know, I mean, I'm so tired of working with people who treat other people horribly, no matter whether you're yeah. a, a manager or a director or a professor, right? It's like, there's no excuse for that. No, if you are truly in these positions, why aren't you leading with compassion? Yes. And, and why are you, people yeah. feel safe. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of making them feel unsafe. I resigned from a job in February because I was psychologically unsafe. It wasn't just me. I had colleagues come up to me and ask how I was doing repeatedly. Mm -hmm. 
person was known. I was the fourth person to leave the team in six months. So look at my resume and look at what I've done versus this person who's a quote unquote leader in a leadership role. I mean, I had somebody that was her peer with a higher title ask me how it was working with her. I mean, and go off on how difficult it was to work with her. So it's just like, wow. are you kidding me? Are And I'm the one that's resigning? It's got to stop. And, you know, and I'm hopeful. I really am hopeful because you might know about this. The NAACP, what they started doing was about in April when we started seeing the COVID deaths and the disparities between black and brown bodies, mm -hmm. they actually started doing weekly calls. And so Nancy Pelosi was there, Cory Booker, governors, uh, Elizabeth Warren was a guest. So they were doing weekly calls to discuss all of this. And then in June, an emergency meeting was held and they went on for about two months. And in one of the first June meetings, Derek Johnson, he was asked, the president of the NAACP right now, he was asked about, you know, what's, what's different? And he gave me hope. Well, he said this time around with the Black Lives Matter resurgence, because it's been around for seven years. Mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, I we know. just we just chose to ignore it, and now mm -hmm. it's back up again because we haven't solved it, mm -hmm. uh, a lot. So what he said is that what is different than in the '60s in this country is that in the '60s it was primarily a black issue. This time around, it was worldwide with white people with us. The second thing that he said was that there were actually this time around, the cops were coming out. Remember at the beginning of June, there were a lot of videos of cops, police force folks that were saying what happened was absolutely wrong. And so those were the two things that brought me hope that why yeah. this time is different. You know, the world burned for a couple of weeks worldwide. Mm -hmm. So this is very real. And if folks want to continue making excuses, that's on them because it's very real and it's very pervasive. It is in every facet of our life. And this is where I want to contribute, where my work and my scripts and what I offer through the inclusive lens, I want to change that. And because I love media and I love entertainment and we can make it so that it is definitely content that we want to see and it's content that's reflective and it's content that's inclusive because for me, belonging is the core and I never saw myself in any show until Never Have I Ever on Netflix, mm -hmm. which was written by Mindy Kaling. Not all the episodes, but some of it. But it was comedic. It was representative. And it was like, wow, I could see myself at 16 being this girl. You know, it was amazing to see that. I love it. It was show. amazing. Yeah. It was so funny. Yeah. And it was amazing to see. And it was the culture and it was done well and it was done right. And it was like, Okay. And this is what happens when you have people within a culture who really know or studied it or lived mm -hmm. it are writing about the experience, just telling human stories. Like the main character in Never Have I Ever, she could be purple mm -hmm. and the story would still be there because mm -hmm. she's a human story. But there's a, a major great cultural element that's there. And this is where for me, you know, I want to see content where we're learning about Harriet Tubman, we're learning about Thurgood Marshall, we're learning about the struggles. If people want to write that and do that, yes. And if people just want to write human stories and put diverse people in cast into their human stories, that's wonderful too. We can have it all. Did you see the reboot of One Day at a Time? No, I haven't seen that one. I grew up on, because I'm older than you, I grew up on One Day at a Time. It was, <laughs> it was actually really groundbreaking for its time. It was a single mom with two teenage mm. daughters and a super that was kind of constantly in there in their apartment. Yeah. 
it was groundbreaking at the time. It actually tackled a lot of different topics. But they did a remake with Justin Machado and Rita Moreno, the amazing Rita Moreno. She mm-hmm. was the grandmother. And they basically remade it with a Latinx mm. uh, cast. Yeah. Oh, how great. And it's really good. So basically, and I mean, it, it introduces some new things like the, the mom is also a vet, introduces some different elements, but generally it's the same exact show with Latinx characters. So yeah, um, yeah, I would love to see more of that kind of reboot happen. Exactly. And that's the thing is these are the things that are great content where we can tell the human stories. And like I think about Us by Jordan Peele, the people could be lime green Mm -hmm. in that story. If Mm -hmm. you want to just talk about inclusivity and diversity, that's only skin deep, right? Because that's, it's not just that. It's not just about ethnicity. And that's what I love about it. It's a great cast. It's a good story. And it's wonderful that it is a black director with almost all black cast, like the main cast, Mm -hmm. the main family. And it was a human horror story. Of course, it has all these different layers with the fact oh, that gosh. they were black, right? <laughs> right. Oh, so yeah. I can't imagine it being anywhere near as powerful if they weren't black, really. But <laughs> I know I need to see that movie again. That was a really good movie. Well, I mean, and Get Out, of course. Yeah, of course. It was very, very powerful. But that's what happens when you have the, I mean, I I half laugh, but I get what Jordan Peele's doing because he wants creative control. I mean, he's the director, the screenwriter, and the producer. (laughs) Like, I get what he's doing. He's covering every single of his bases. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. To make sure nothing is lost. And I see your point. My point is, let's tell these human stories. And it's great that it is a black cat. We could tell that story and it would be a Latinx cast too. And we would still be able to tell the story because that oppression and, you know, the messages that they're trying to say there is is very blatant. But this is what we got to do. But this is where this content is so great and it's doing well. Mm -hmm. And I bring this up because in the past, why certain movies weren't made was like, oh, there's no audience. People won't be able, won't want it. And then you get Crazy Rich Asians and you get Black Panther and they are blockbusters mm. so we can't be saying this not we uh, you know not you right, and i right right, right, right exactly <laughs> but but the people that green light this yes. you know there's no excuse for them in terms of their mm-hmm. content there's also no excuse in terms of the books that are put out there mm-hmm. that somebody wouldn't want to read about a story about a girl in iran yeah we want that Mm-hmm. We want those stories and we want those authors. And the next shift is for us to raise white boys that are mm-hmm. comfortable reading stories about people who don't look like them, either women or people of color. <laughs> so mm-hmm. As a white girl, I grew up reading about boys all the time, right? Yes. But boys often gravitate to stories about other boys and by boys. There's yes. It needs to happen there too. Yeah. And that's just introducing them at a, at a young age mm-hmm. to all these different stories told by different people and with girls that are doing things that girl astronauts girl engineers Mm -hmm. so that it just becomes normal because you know the statistic that girls outperform but something happens in middle school that change happens where girls are deterred from doing the stem and doing math and science and it moves into like this 1950s horror of home ec and it's like Mm -hmm. stop 
yeah. carry that through, you know, something in middle school and that in puberty that just changes these dynamics and needs to stop. And it does need to happen at a very young age. And even my cousin's kids, they'll say certain things. I remember when one of my nephews was very young, he made a comment about how girls don't like getting dirty or something mm. like that. I went straight to the computer <laughs> and pulled up my Facebook and showed him when I'd done the warrior dash. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, so having those books, being those role models in the way that you can be. And it does start at, at that early age. And okay. it does start with the socialization and school. My goodness. I mean, yeah. I think back to everything I did not learn and how horrible mm. it is because school is so influential in the people that they're interacting with when we finally get back to um, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> being able to be around people. It's a content. And what are their teachers and what are their principals reinforcing? It's a lot of work and we need to be able to face it with courage. And if we just change one thing one day at a time, it will change. Mm -hmm. And we can make these big, huge changes in academia, in the content that we're consuming in our lives. I'm a believer that it, it can happen. And I, and I also am very hopeful as I am with every generation. <laughs> it's not everywhere, but the amount of acceptance that at least I see around queer teens, mm -hmm. trans teens, oh, yeah. kids, mm -hmm. I didn't have that. I mean, one, it was, yeah, I didn't meet a trans person until I was in my 20s mm -hmm. uh, openly. But the fact that there are trans children, mm -hmm. there's trans teens, and we're hearing about them and there's slowly there's support for the families while children transition. That makes me hopeful. Yeah, and I've totally seen that in my own. I have three sons and they're all very trans friendly. Mm -hmm. They you know, they will I mean they know all about pronouns and one of my proudest moments really was when my oldest son was headed off to college and he got a text from his new roommate. They had been corresponding and mm -hmm. he didn't know his roommate and the roommate texted him and told him that he was at the time he used he. I think now his roommate's fully transitioned to she, but at the mm -hmm. time he wasn't out. And so he told my son that he was trans. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. my son was surprised. But and he said, you know, if you don't want to be my roommate, I totally understand. But he was like, Yeah, no, this is fine. So I was yeah. really proud of him. Oh yeah. Proud mama mama. Yeah. So I, I do feel like <laughs> at least in Portland public schools, I know that there are still a lot of issues of race going on in the schools, not so much in the content and curriculum, but there are certainly racist incidents happening in Portland public schools. But I think on the LBGTQ issue, it's been, I feel like they have been really educated wisely in sex ed and things like that. Yeah, I've been pretty impressed. I'm hopeful. Uh, yeah. The thing is, how do we change also the homes, right? Because the home is yes, so influential. Absolutely. Same thing around ethnicity, you know, just because we teach Black lives and finally talk about the history and really be honest about the history of this country. It doesn't mean that they're getting that same enforcement at home. Absolutely. We do need to continue this path. And it is dismantling, you know, because I used to say, oh, the system's not working. No, it is working. It's designed and working exactly the <laughs> right. way it was intended. Right, right. And it is to continue the oppression so that only a small group continues to win. Mm -hmm. It is about diverting funds and putting them into mm -hmm. places that can allow people to see the real education, be real, have honest conversations, and move forward together. Mm -hmm. Again, belonging. How do I feel safe? Do I mm -hmm. feel like I can be here 
in my authentic self where I don't need to change my vernacular, like we were talking about earlier, where I need to feel like I can't say anything because I might lose my job and there goes my family's quote unquote security. But that's the way the system is built. Yeah. Like it's literally built like that. And we need true measures, right? Instead of what we were just talking about where you file a complaint and it goes nowhere. And then you lose your one diverse hire. Well, you weren't diverse. You put somebody in there in a position unsafely and provided no safety for them and what they needed. That's horrific. We, as a society, are just recreating and creating trauma. Is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? You know, I I love that you asked this question. I would actually say it's about my ancestors. My great-grandparents were actually indentured servants to the British. The British had colonies in India and, gosh, horrible terms, and in Fiji. And so what happened is that when the British got Fiji... Uh, like literally like, you know, colonize them, like genocide, like horrible. They needed people to work their land. And so my ancestors, my great grandparents were some that chose to go from India, leave their homes and work the lands for the British in Fiji. And once their servitude, yes, servitude was over, the Indians had the choice of either going back to India or staying in Fiji. And my my great-grandparents were the ones that chose to stay in Fiji. So my grandparents were born in Fiji. They had the mix of Indian and island culture. My grandfather was born on a boat on the way to Fiji. So I think about that, and I can only imagine what my great-grandmother must have been feeling. And she would have been very young. She would have been a teenager because my grandma was, so that little boy that was born, his wife, she was married at 12. My maternal grandmother was married at 15. You got your period, you were in a woman. And so I think about what they went through, you know, as I sit here and talk about my accolades and there's been struggles, but I can't imagine getting on a boat. And this would have been a couple of months journey, especially as a pregnant woman, you know, like, wow. And so it makes me be like, that's where I come from. And unfortunately, a lot was lost as it happens in in servitude and colonization. I don't know anything past my great grandparents. My parents never met their grandparents. So there's definitely resiliency there. And it, and But it's also part of colonization where our histories get erased. And so we continue this. You know, I have three master's degrees. My sister is a PhD. So the world that we've been able to create just two generations later. It is really amazing. amazing. So, you know, it's my homage to uh, thank my ancestors and what they went through. And who knows, you know, great-great-grandparents, what they went through and what they persevered for us to be able to be in this position where I'm overlooking trees right now on a bright sunny day. (laughs) Right. Oh, and that you have savings that you can rely on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they didn't have these options. Mm -hmm. And definitely young women, I mean, gosh, you know, 12-year-old marriage, like we know what happens around the world, but it's very real for me, Mm -hmm. you know? And like my paternal grandmother, she got married at 12, but... Then she went back home and like lived until she got, you know, was, was able to have children and then went and lived with her husband that was uh, significantly older than her. One of my grandmothers, she, yeah, she had her first child at 14. I mean, it's just like, my goodness, <laughs> you, you don't learn how to read. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're not given these opportunities uh, that we are. 
you know, you're in a space where, and my great grandfather was widowed. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure it was hard on him to try to raise these two girls in this life. And I don't, I I actually don't know what happened to my great grandmother Mm -hmm. on my paternal side. I don't know how she died. So, so talk about resiliency. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I pay, I pay homage again. I pay Mm -hmm. homage to them. That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Ash. This has been really fascinating. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I I respect everything you're doing. And I appreciate you for staying true to who you are and what you need. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ash about media and inclusion. Next week, I continue my focus on equity and inclusion when I interview my friend, Joy Fowler, who is the Diversity and Inclusion Program Manager at the Port of Portland. I met Joy after we both gave birth to boys at 24 weeks gestation, and we were volunteering for Legacy Emanuel's NICU and Family Advisory Board. Her beloved son, Amir, died in 2012. She and her husband, Alan, founded a foundation for special needs children in Amir's honor, a Miracle Foundation, Inc. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com.